up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddard. Welcome to the Copy Blogger Podcast. As always, I'm with my friend and my co-host, Ethan. And before we recorded, we were trying to think of some ideas and both of us are just very overworked and have been inundated in like marketing land. And so (laughs) Ethan and I were like, let's just hit record and talk about what's going on with our work and our projects and and try to stay well i'm going to try to stay away from you know being the uh the the marketing whiz advice column guy today i want to just step back a little bit and and take a reflection so uh what are you working on man what's going on in your life uh good question i'll get into it but before i do i wanted i think we want to hear from listeners too because part of that conversation was we were saying tim text me goes dude what are we talking about today? And I'm like, I have <laughs> no idea. I'm so burnt out on like marketing guru stuff. I don't even want to, I don't even want to think about it. And then we kind of chat about it. And I'm like, you know, if we're feeling this way, other people are probably feeling this way too. And that's not to say that we do like a lot of guru type stuff here, but I think that these trends kind of move like through the community, like waves, you know? and if you're in tune with it, maybe I'm wrong, but if you're in tune with it, you can kind of uh, adapt and you end up putting things out that are like in line with the way that your audience feels when they're feeling it. And all of a sudden mm. somebody goes, oh, like, you know, finally somebody who's in touch. So I don't know. We're we're doing this because this is how we feel. And we want to hear from you if you're feeling the same way. What do you got going on? Are you burnt out on the guru thing? Or are you excited about something? Maybe maybe it's something that only infects half the population at a time. Well, I am still in the month of May. And in one of the recent podcasts, <laughs> we talked about how I'm taking the month We're of May. We're all still in the month of May. Yeah, well, like emotionally, I'm committing to myself not to take on any big projects or any new ideas for this month. When I made this deal with Copyblogger and... Next week is like the official rollout to combine the Copyblogger Academy with with digital commerce. And so that's been a little bit of a, well, it hasn't been strenuous. It just, you got to really pay attention to detail with those kind of things, you know? So like, it's been a slow, very methodical process to make sure the transition is smooth. And so all this extra time I've had, like I, I'm proud of myself for committing because of how much anxiety and like nervous energy I have to want to keep working on something, want to keep working on something, you know? And so I'm, I'm in a weird spot where I've been enjoying writing my blog and like Can writing I, my newsletter. This is funny because I was going to say this when we got on here and be like, you know how I know your partnership worked? You want to know how I know? How's that? Because you text me stuff now that you've never texted me before. And I'm like, how much goddamn time does Tim have on his hands? <laughs> Just for Someone everybody. Talk to me. <laughs> no, I'm not for the listeners. Here's a little like look behind the scenes at what it's like to be Tim's friend right now. So he texted me. I mean, we talked, we, we were talking about the show and then he goes, um, what have you been pondering about? <laughs> Send in life. Send. <laughs> And I'm like, I don't know, man, I'm really busy these days. Not a ton of pondering. And then like 20 minutes later, he goes, oh, shit, the podcast in 18 minutes. Send. <laughs> LOL. Send. <Yeah. laughs> it's like, I, it's like I know this dude. Yeah, this guy's got time right now. 
this is <laughs> so congratulations on the new partnership. It's definitely working out well. It seems like it. Thank um, you. But you mentioned something which we should probably go over, which is this new thing that you just wrote. Uh, you, you said you're writing more, and uh, you shared an article today that I, I think you said you're like more proud of this than anything you've ever written before, which is quite the statement. You want to dig into this? Thank you. And yeah, I think this is a great idea to talk about. When you said something earlier, how there's these weird invisible trends sometimes where it's like the whole community kind of secretly gets burned out on this thing and we start somehow going into this other, like a bend around a river, right? Mm -hmm. uh, my father, of all people, this is really interesting. My dad's been a, a paramedic in Philly for like 20 something years and he has seen a lot of shit basically especially in, in Philadelphia with like the drug overdose epidemic and just young kids dying all the time. And it's taken a real toll on him, like mentally and emotionally. And so over the last couple of years, he and I have really been talking a lot about him starting like a foundation or a, a, a media asset, let's call it like, you know, that's, that's where my head goes about mental health in emergency responders. So my family is oh my full of God. like cops and medics and firemen. And my dad has so much experience in this field and he's saved like so many lives and he's just seen everything, you know, and we've been talking about it for a while. So anyway, I keep, keep, take that chunk, that information, put it in a little side compartment real quick. And I published a blog this morning on timstods.com all about becoming a linchpin. I had a very, very profound moment. In my life a couple of years ago, where everybody knows I reference Seth Godin a lot, and I, I really buy into like his ideology on creating content. And I read one of his books once called Lynchpin. And Lynchpin is basically about two things. It's about how the westernized workforce has been trained to be mechanized, like a factory worker. And that's fine. Like that's the industrial revolution. That's how we got to where we are today. But it's the reason why our parents say like, wake up, get a job, go to work, clock in, punch out, put in your hours, do the same thing. Uh, it's the reason why our education system has bells that tell you when you can and can't move around the hallways because it's like an old Prussian system about using bells to shift workers in and out of their, um, uh, th their shifts, excuse me. And so when you take that in mind, you realize that that system isn't actually in line with what creates success today, because what creates success today is actually like individuality, the way the internet works and, and the fact that like most of our needs are met. So a lot of the opportunity is in creative work and is in like once, you know, like you pay to feel good a lot more than we were just than was feasible like a hundred something years ago, right? Because like you would pay just to eat and to live and to survive. So Lynchpin is, is basically about that. It's about highlighting that framework in our society. The problem is we are wired from a very, very hardwired evolutionary standpoint not to stand out in a crowd. And this is something I've always been very fascinated with. This was like the real moment for me when I, I saw this and I felt like, oh, that's what it is. Like Stephen Pressfield calls it the resistance. And Seth Godin calls it the lizard brain. And it's your amygdala. And your amygdala is a, is a very prehistoric part of your brain that sits right on top of your brain stem. So it's the thing that is most connected to your like instant reaction, you know? So the example is when you cross the street, we've all done it. 
And all of a sudden you're spacing out and you look up and you see a car coming, like you just jump out of the way and you don't even think about it. Well, that's your amygdala. That's your survival mechanism. And that same exact thing is wired for a couple hundred thousand years to be fearful of isolation. It's to be fearful of standing out from the tribe. It's to be fearful of like being alone in the forest and you hear the rustle in the bushes and you instantly think that it's danger because like just evolutionarily, we're genetically hardwired to do that because the people that didn't think it were danger got eaten by the bear, you know? And so the people that survived were the people that were naturally anxious. So you combine those two ideas together. You realize that our modern society to succeed, one of the ways to succeed, especially in creative work, like you have to put yourself out there. You have to stand up on stage. You have to publish your work. You have to fail in front of other people. But in order to do that, you have to quite literally force your brain to do the one thing that it has been trained for thousands of years not to do, which is like to potentially offend the chief, to get kicked out of the tribe, you know, to say something that might make people squirm or, or to, to put your art out there. And so how do you do that? How in this modern age do you fight against that lizard brain? And it's a practice, right? Like you just have to continuously do it. You have to publish your work. You have to miss those free throws in front of your team. You have to, you know, miss the shot at the buzzer and be booed. And there's just no other way to do it. So I wrote this article. I'm very, very proud of it. It's got a lot of ideas, which you can tell. And like, it, it took me a long time to figure out how to put them together in a way that flows and isn't like too choppy. So I worked very hard on it. And then wouldn't you know, my father, since he works too damn much and he picks people up on stretchers for the last 20 years, he's got a torn rotator cuff in his shoulder. And my dad finally, 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 after me harping on him for like three years, ha is forced not to work. He's, he's on PTO and he started a podcast. And my dad like started a podcast. No way. All about yeah, mental health with emergency medicine. And so then he read my article this morning because like, you know, he's my dad. He likes to read my stuff. And he said, like, hey, I've been secretly doing my podcast. I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to be like the typical start and stopper type guy. Right. But I got two episodes in and and I just want you to know about it. And I'm, I'm trying to be a linchpin type deal. So so that was my, that was my day. And I'm feeling pretty good about it. And thanks for listening to my story. That's awesome, man. Wait, let's shout him out. Uh not just because he's your dad, but also because this is like probably one of the more important topics for sure. that faces every country right now. I mean, I've seen the stats on burnout among first responders it's and gnarly. it's, yo, yeah, it was always high, but it's way higher now post pandemic. So what's this podcast called? Well, he doesn't have a name for it yet. He's got two episodes recorded on Anchor. They're in draft, but they are publishing. He told me, and I actually let him get away with this. He's like, I don't want to publish something right before Memorial Day because then no one's going to listen to it. I was like, okay, that's fine. So <laughs> his official launch date is next Sunday, which is or next Monday, which is going to be the sixth. So we'll give him we'll give him TBD. next week off, and then we're going to hold his ass to the fire. So. Monday, May, June 6th, my dad's podcast about life as a paramedic for the last 25 years in like inner city Philadelphia. Oh my um, God. Yeah. So if, if my dad can do it, I'm telling you, like if my dad can speak <laughs> on a podcast, anybody can do it. I promise you. Wow. That is wild. Congrats to him. 
I feel like we should name it for him. I agree. He's <laughs> yeah. struggling with the name. Write, write it up. Yeah, first thing that comes to my mind, anything related to Philly is the Fresh Prince, but I'm not sure that's the way to go these days. So It's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that probably won't work too well these days. <laughs> yeah. Do you still remember one of the first times that you actively pushed through that in a way that mattered for your business? It didn't matter directly for my business, but I think it had secondary effects just because it was one of those first like, oh my God, I want to throw up moments and I did it anyway. On my first ever blog when I was in Florida, I wrote a story and like, it was probably really, really bad. And like, I'm actually really happy that it's not on the internet anymore because it, it, it makes me squirm even just thinking about it, right? But like, I was four months sober and I stayed up all night. I couldn't sleep. I'll, I'll never forget it, actually. I was in this like shitty apartment in South Florida with a laptop that I bought at a pawn shop listening to Dead Mouse. Strobe was on, which is one of my all-time favorite songs. It's, it's a song by Dead Mouse called Strobe. And I wrote a story about walking my dog and how all of a sudden my dog could talk to me and my dog could never figure out what the problem was because like that's what we all want to be right like how come my dog is just never stressed like wherever he is he's in the present moment and that's like the magic that dogs have they're just always completely present and i wrote this story about how uh my dog could all of a sudden talk to me and like i was walking him in the story and he was talking to me and then when i got back i tried to explain it to in, in the story of my girlfriend who like didn't really exist but she was just the other character and she looked at me like I was crazy because I was talking to my dog, but couldn't figure out the message in between that. And like how in our own heads, how many times has that happened to us where we can't see the underlying message just because there's some other thing that like gets in the way. Right. And so I remember publishing that story and putting it out on Facebook and just being terrified about it, like absolutely terrified. And honestly, I don't even know if anybody read it or commented on it or anything. But I do remember that particular moment being like, I didn't die. Just like you're not going to die on stage. And, and just like, like I, I, I pushed past the yeah. lizard brain for like one of the first times in my life. I like that, man. That's interesting. I think we'll have to come back to this whole idea of storytelling too, because I feel like it's interesting that you tried to make a what was effectively like a nonfiction point yeah. through a piece of fiction. I feel like we're going to start seeing more of that in the next couple of years, in part because of this feeling that we have. Like we started this talking about how just burnt out people are on advice. And yeah. I think there's an element of that that will like it will reward people who can take the same ideas and package them up in story form in a way that is really appealing. Like uh, Sahil Bloom does a great job of that. Mm. He writes a lot of advice, but every once in a while, he'll publish kind of like a whimsical story type piece of advice and uh, people go nuts for it. So I think that's a really interesting approach. And it actually doesn't sound like a bad story to begin with. I thought it was um, good. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Flatland? Has that ever come across your... Okay. No. I was on a backpacking trip one time and. Uh, I ran out of stuff to read. I was staying at this uh, sort of Airbnb back before Airbnbs. And the host, she was like this really intelligent uh, veterinarian who had left the like the high paced field of city vets to go be a vet in the middle of the mountains of Tennessee. 
And just her and her husband were just really interesting people. She had this huge bookcase and she told me to read Flatland. It's a very short book. And the whole premise is that like, it's this world and uh, for any Flatland fans out there, forgive me for any details I screw up here as years ago now, but the idea is like, it was this world that exists in one plane. So there, there's, there, there's no depth to it. And like men are, um, what would you call it? What's a shape with more than three sides? That, is that a, a rhombus? Maybe. Or... Yeah, maybe. First thing that came to my head is polygon. Polygon. Yep. No, that's the one. It was men are polygons. Women are lines. And, you know, their houses are just like one dimensional floor plans. And there's like all these. It was it was really interesting how they kind of built the world uh, around this concept of like, what would it really be like if you lived in a world with only one plane? But the interesting sort of wrinkle in the story is that there's a character from this flatland who encounters a 3D character. 3D character kind of comes into the world and then picks this one di- one dimensional character or I guess two dimensional character <laughs> up so that for the first time he's able to see all of flatland below him. And then when he's dropped back into flatland, nobody believes him mm. because they think it's absolutely ridiculous that there could ever be like a third dimension. And so it's really, it's, it's kind of the same. It's a commentary on a similar notion to what you're talking about. So I don't, I don't hate your approach. I think I actually kind of think I want to see the uh, Tim Stad's talking dog story, get back out on the web somewhere, but that's an interesting example. So you published, you hit publish, you overrode the lizard brain and you remember, why do you remember that version? Because it was like the first, first big time or, or do you think back on that every time that you're nervous now? Why is that the one that comes to mind? I remember feeling really good. That creative, terrified buzz that exists somewhere right in between like pleasure and horror. You know, it's like that feeling right before you jump out of a plane on skydiving. It's uh, you, you know the data like the 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 dopamine is highest right before you do the thing mm-hmm. and i i think that was just one of those moments where i finally felt that feeling of like oh this must be what being a writer actually feels like and i'd been like longing for it for so long and like you know my story chasing that thing in in all these different directions and it was just one of the first times i ever felt that but you know who i, I do okay uh, I think Tim Urban is a really good example of this because sometimes when I read his stuff, I think this should not work. You know, like this, this does not make any sense in the traditional, well, maybe traditional is not the word in the, um, he breaks all the rules. Yeah. Like in the best practice approach of getting your content and your message out there and his stories are exactly that he he makes high-level conceptualized points in very, very simple terms by using stories that like, we can all understand and relate to. So while, while you were saying Flatland, I, was, I don't even know why. I was, I was thinking of Tim Urban and just going like, yeah, there's, there's something to this where I think people are getting a little bit bored of the same like, repeated and regurgitated advice over and over again. And it's like, mm-hmm. don't tell me what to do. Tell me who you are and tell me what you think. And I'm with that. There could be something there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's partly that uh, it's just played out. The other thing is, I think there's an aspect of it that's like cultural bordering on political. So 
we live in a time when it is like the stakes are very high for saying something that's true, but controversial. And that's existed before in the past. I mean, there have been points in this country's history when it was not possible to truth as a writer and keep your yeah. job or keep your reputation. And so what you see happen in those times is like the sort of blossoming of fiction, because you can say truths in fiction that you can't say in nonfiction. And other things like, you know, the, 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 the use of pen names and all this kind of stuff becomes more, more of the de facto approach. And, you know, we've been kind of lucky to live in an age where that hasn't necessarily been the case. But I, I tend to think that it's kind of a cycle. And it feels like for a lot of reasons, uh, the, the cycle's changing. And people who can tell good stories and like invoke that sense of whimsy in order to make a point about something that's very real. I think are going to have a lot of advantages in the coming years, just from a storytelling and business perspective. All right. Without the hero's journey, which is just like the, the typical framework, and we can all follow that. You're actually, you're more of a fiction reader than I am. I read a lot of fiction, but I read a lot of comics. You know, like Alan Moore and like Neil Gaiman are the people that I read, you know, with comics. But you, I mean, I think you said like Huck Finn or something and like the Call of the Wild were really impactful to you. So like what makes a good story, right? Like if it's not the hero's journey, then how the hell do you actually tell a story in a way that impacts people, but also like changes them, like invokes a, because that's what you want, right? Like you're, mm. you're writing to try to get a reaction out of somebody, whether that's the positive or negative or buy something or click this, or maybe even yeah. just think about it, you know, like, how do you tell a story? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question. I would, I would just caveat by saying you probably actually read more fiction than I is different, but uh, I don't consider myself to be a big fiction reader, but I do like some of the older stuff for, for some of these reasons, because it's surprised me by how I don't know, like prescient it still is yeah. to our world. And I do think it's, I think it's all the same journey. I think it's all the hero's journey, which I'm by no means an expert in. But let me, I'll, I have one opinion on this, which is I think the best stories are true stories. And what I mean by that is not that it's something that actually happened, but that it is something that reflects, it has to reflect the way the world really is as the reader knows it. So, I was thinking about this recently, like what makes, what makes good writing, yeah. right? It's, it's actually not the writer. And you know that because there are like artificial intelligence computers that, that can create something that sounds like good writing. So it has nothing to do with the mind of the writer. Good writing is recognized and effectively created by the reader. The reader decides what good writing is. And I think readers think something is good. This is how they do it. A piece of writing is good. If it shows them a version of the world that matches their perspective of it. So like if you can speak to somebody else's truth, they will consider that to be a good piece of writing. And that's why writing so controversial, right? Because there is no one objective version of reality, no one objective version of good writing, but there is bad writing and yeah. bad writing is anything that doesn't match like I don't know how to say it. Truth. And you can see it in, 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 in different things, like when characters develop too fast or, or when characters do things that they really wouldn't do, which I, you know, I'm again, by no means an expert on this, but, but these are the things that I think about when I'm trying to write from a storytelling perspective. 
Um, there's one other thing too that like this is something Sam taught me, which I try to think about a lot. I asked him one time, I'm like, what do you think? Like, why do you think most people struggle to grow and get recognized? Like, and he goes, Well, everyone's lost their sense of showmanship. And I said, you know, what do you mean by that? He's like, you know, like showmanship, like like get people excited about the story. Use words that actually evoke emotions. I think a lot of people, and this is one of the reasons like guru Twitter is so exhausting, is like mm-hmm. it's all just buzzwords. And people figure out one format that works and everybody latches onto it. So I think the ones who really win there, sure, there's a lot of people who come in and they clean up because they are able to recognize those patterns and leverage them. And that's a good skill to have. But I think the ones who kind of get like the most spiritual sort of satisfaction from playing in those realms are not just doing what they know works. They're also trying new things that they're not sure are going to work. So I don't know. I've said a lot of things there, but I think it boils down to like, you got to be able to say something that's true. And I don't know if, (laughs) I don't know, I don't know what the, like how to get more specific on that, but it's got to be true in the eyes of whoever it is that's reading what you're writing. And, uh, and I think you got to be like bold and try stuff that's new, even if it sucks, which I guess comes directly back to your point (laughs) of, you know, sometimes you're going to eat shit for a while. Or like, I love, uh, Stephen King's saying on that. He goes, you got to like keep showing up, even though some days it feels like all you can achieve is to shovel shit from a sitting position. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Ethan, you say so many like simple things that are so profound when we talk. There are so much that I want to say right now because it made me the idea that the 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 message is in the reader. It's the observer who gets to decide what is good and what is not. And there's three things really. I'm gonna say three so that I remember to go through all three of them so that my my vernacular doesn't wander too much. One of them is you know how that that new AI, what's it called? Dolly or something like that, they can create mm-hmm. art. Well, that's the first thing I thought of, where if machines can create art, then the person that gets recognized from that is still going to be the person that says, I have an idea, and this idea can be like, the labor can be done by a machine, but the interaction between like my idea and observation of the idea still is authentic, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's still human. And I think that's a rule in writing and painting or whatever your art is that it's going to be very difficult to break. Like maybe one day it'll it'll be broken. Who knows? I, I don't personally think that's going to be in my lifetime. So I think that is so cool. But then the other one, I mentioned Neil Gaiman and I mentioned Alan Moore. And maybe just because they're in the top of my mind, that's what came together. So in Alan Moore, he's a famous graphic novelist. He wrote Watchmen which is not only one of the best graphic novels of all time, it's one of the best novels of all time. Like when I read this book for the first time, I the thing that I kept thinking is history played out in a certain way, specifically so he could write this book. It wow. just weaves so many things together. And I, I remember when you said showmanship, I thought of him because, you know, of course I looked him up and Alan Moore is uh, he's from like the Highlands of Britain. He created his own god. He worships some kind of snake god. He's got a like a 10-foot no beard. He's got more rings than you can even fit on your hand. He's just the most wild guy. But he does it all from a sense of 
like he changes his God. He, he's trying to see the world from different people's perspective and like almost create like a caricature of his authorship so that he can try to bring that into his writing. So I, I thought of that when you said showmanship. And then finally, when you said understanding the truth, there's a book by Neil Gaiman called The Ocean at the End of the Lane. And it's one of his shorter books. And it's a really, really vivid story about this family called the Hempstocks. Um, it's basically like a demon comes and it's a little boy and you know the little boy meets Lily Hempstock to save him. But in the undertone of this book is there's a pond. It's a duck pond. And Lily keeps calling it the ocean. And the little boy couldn't figure out why. And then finally, towards like the climax, he grabs a bucket and he picks up um, just a, a bucket of water from, from this pond. And he's able to jump in it. And it's at that point that he realized that a pond is an ocean and a bucket is a pond because there's these things in life that are able to be like itemized, but in its totality are always endless. And I've always thought about that way about like physics and space. And, uh, you know, stare up at the sky going like, what is this? Why are we are here? And one of that moment when all of a sudden I realized what he was trying to tell in the story where he was like saying that a drop and a bucket is an ocean because to somebody looking down, an ocean might be a drop. And to somebody who's like a millionth of the size, a drop might be an ocean. And when that moment clicked for me, I like really, really got the truth. And so those truth moments that you referenced, I think, are much more meaningful than we give them credit for because they really, really can change like human behavior. I love that as an example, uh, this, this concept that like perspective can get closer or further, but, but, the, the, but there's some kind of constant that like it, it revolves around. And depending on how close you are or far from it, that, that, depend, that, that is what dictates what you see. But in this case, like that pond would be kind of the constant. And I think that's almost what we're using as a stand in here, like calling it truth. It's like there is something that exists out there that is real, even though we all argue over it every single day and we all have our own perspectives of it. And it's the job of the writer to be able to kind of slice off a piece of that and bring it into the story the way that the reader would recognize it. As you were as you were talking there, you helped me actually clarify one of my thoughts about what truth is or like how could you categorize it because I, I think that's the hardest part the pond is the truth in the story I, I get totally what you're saying yeah yeah it's this thing that like it's it almost can't be fully described but yeah. it's like it is a it is kind of a constant I think one important trait and I do think this actually ties in also with what your article's about in terms of overcoming the fear of publishing one really important trait is to be able to divorce yourself from the fear of judgment for what you're going to say. And I think this yeah. is actually a line that I heard Neil Gaiman share in a uh, podcast at one point, but he basically said he was giving advice to somebody or somebody was giving him advice. He was writing something very tricky and somebody said, or maybe it was him, said, give no quarter to your ego. And the point uh, that's always stuck with me as like one of the hardest and most important things to do in storytelling of any kind, because, you know, most of our stories are come from experiences of ours. And I think there's a temptation to see ourselves kind of as the hero sometimes. For sure. 
if not the hero, then certainly to like protect ourselves from any like backlash that would come from somebody else and the way they perceive the story. But you can't write truth if you are overwhelmed with concern for how people are going to perceive things. Yeah. And I think that's that's easily recognized in bad stories. And I don't know if people necessarily would think this, you know, it's just not believable, right? Because because it's too good or it's or or this character is too evil or whatever it is. I don't know if they can always put their finger on it, but the reality is what you're trying to do is you're actually trying to maintain control over what the reader thinks too much. And there's a there's there's kind of a balance that has to be struck there. Um, and I think it can only really come from practicing this discipline yeah. of removing yourself from the outcome, not not necessarily caring so much about it. So yeah. it's funny how all these roads kept leading back to this initial topic of overcoming that kind of amygdala response. I hadn't thought until we had this conversation how deeply tied into good storytelling. That really yeah. can be. Yeah. But uh, fascinating stuff. Well, it's it's difficult because it's almost like the cruel joke of creativity where you sit down to say something and the process of saying something creates a thing that like you probably didn't actually mean to say, but like in some <laughs> ways it's still the act of saying something, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, so let me ask you, do you start like with your process do you know what you're trying to say before you say it and do you feel like you hit the mark most of the time or is it like a start from a and and figure out where you're going along the way i think there are two different experiences that i have sometimes there's a very clear idea that i know that i hold and i'm trying to figure out how to voice it and and then other times it's the opposite. I will sit down and write about something that's bothering me. And I'm not even really sure how I feel about it until I've sat down. But I, but the writing is different. So in the second case, it's usually more of a stream of consciousness. Yeah. And then that's when something comes out that I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I didn't even realize that was uh, like, that's a really good way of of encapsulating this issue or whatever it is. But I'll give you an example of the first one that actually I was thinking about this earlier because this happened to me this morning. I was out for a walk. And one thing that I think has always like frustrated me, especially nowadays, I know we don't, uh, not to get political because we don't get political on the show, but it frustrates me to be somebody who sort of, I would consider myself somewhere in the middle. And I see people on both ends of the spectrum and they, they suffer so much for their beliefs. And I think a lot of the suffering is driven by, their inability to understand what the other person is saying, like on the other end of the spectrum. So it's kind of like a self-imposed suffering that doesn't have to be there. And anybody listening to this, who's kind of sat in the middle of family dinner at Thanksgiving over the last couple of years will know what I'm talking about. There is a massive miscommunication that's going on. So the belief that I know that I've held for a long time is like, man, Things would be a lot better if we could just get people to realize the common ground that they hold. A lot of people hold that belief. I've never really known how to voice that opinion or voice it in a way that's constructive or even helpful. And then I was walking today and a story occurred to me. And you know what it is? I haven't written it yet, but I want to. Have you heard the story of the three blind men who are uh, feeling like they're inspecting an elephant and they're trying to describe what an elephant is? 
It's in like the trunk and like the other one's only yeah, yeah, yeah. You've heard this? <laughs> yeah, I have. Okay, so I want to tell most people have heard this story, which is that three blind men find an elephant and each one is describing what an elephant is, but they're all standing at different points on the elephant. Yeah. And so all their descriptions are different. What most people don't know is that that's only the beginning of the story. I want to tell everyone what happened next, which is what happened when they tried to decide what to do with the elephant. Because sure. as everybody knows, without necessarily realizing it, it doesn't really matter how you describe what an elephant is. Everyone's got their own opinions of things. And the fact that somebody has an opinion by itself is completely harmless. The real trouble that we run into in the world is when we try to decide what to do about the elephant. And everyone's got their own opinion of what it is. So I was just out and and that was an example. Like I, this idea for like a little, like almost like a written, like a children's book kind of story. It was sort of like short and playful and just uses that allegory to describe some of the ways, like the, the crazy ways in which we fight with each other over things that are so ridiculous to somebody who could see the whole picture. The whole elephant. Yeah. That just started kind of occurring to me. And and so that was an example of the first one in which like yeah. I had an idea that I know I want to voice, but I'm not sure how to voice it. And yeah. every once in a while, just uh, an opportunity kind of finally arises to do so. What about for you? I think that's actually really well said. So I wrote a personal thing on the blank page, my, my personal like hidden substack today about guns. And I know how I feel about that. And that's easy to write. It's it's going pro. Like I know I mentioned Stephen Pressfield, but that's sort of how I feel about that. Like you could be an amateur and just ramble some stuff and and sort of like it's not even necessarily about making an argument. It's just about the skill of articulation. And so I think the skill of articulation is like one one side of it. But for the vast majority of my writing, it always reminds me of um Dave Perel, I think. I've never spoken to him. I got his name right, I think. The one thing that he wrote that always stuck with me is the two types of ways it happens when you write something. One is that the entire file, he was talking about web files, the entire file loads all at once and slowly turns into a pixelated piece from high def. And then the other one is that it loads from like the top and comes all the way down. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. Like you can start at the very beginning. And as it loads and as it loads, it loads like perfectly. Like there's nuance. Obviously, he was there's exceptions for editing and, and stuff like that, right? But like the piece is already done. It's just it loads bit by bit in like a perfect format. Or the entire canvas is black, is blank, and the entire canvas like loads itself up from a, a very, very pixelated, blurry version to eventually sh uh, not shrink, but focus into like a high def version. I thought, wow, that's so insightful. You know, where the first version is is probably something that I wrote this morning. Where like, I already knew what it was I was writing. I just had to articulate it line by line and line so that when the whole thing loaded, it loaded from top to bottom, you know? Mm -hmm. But something like this Seth Godin piece, I'm bouncing all around, you know, like the whole entire canvas is coming into shape line by line and comma by comma. And um, I, I, I really, really thought that was such a cool way to think about it, especially if you read it because he has visuals and you know like i'm talking to the camera like using my hands and stuff like that but uh but the the visuals explained it really well and, and, and so i think that's how it happens for me 
Yeah, that's interesting. I had never thought about it that way. But that's a, I will probably never be able to think about it any other way because that's a, a, a yeah. good visual representation of mm-hmm. how it works. And I think one of the big questions for people is like, well, then how do you practice this skill of whether it's being able to divorce yourself from the outcome or being able to override that amygdala? And I think you've mentioned one already, which is sort of, you know, full sending it. You just, you, you recognize the fear and then you you do it anyways. I think one thing that helped for me was getting around a group of people who were one or two steps ahead of me and seeing them out there doing it and realizing that it it wasn't uh there there were no like there's no lasting damage from what they did. Like I still learn this from and I've been lucky to work with some just really effective well-known writers. And I think one of the things that I learned from them not only is that publishing is like uh for the most part pretty harmless you get it in a dust up over it, but it's important too. And I think so I've seen important. the feedback. Yeah. I've seen the feedback come in and like, you see how these pieces and, it, and like, it'll, it'll always be the thing that you don't think is going to, is going to have any impact. All of a sudden it comes back and somebody just emails you and says, you know, Hey, that was really important. And I'm glad that you said that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you only need a couple of those to overcome the fear of doing it again in the future, because you know, then in your bones that, you know, even if this is scary for me, it's important. And I think you talk about overcoming fear of any kind, like one of the ways in which humans are best able to do that is when there's some kind of higher purpose involved. And that's not, I don't want to get high and mighty about like any particular type of article. Well, why but, does anybody do anything? You know? Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. Isn't... Well, that's the thing. If you can, if you can find a way to link what you're doing to like helping somebody else or some bigger you know, mission rather than just whatever it is that you're trying to achieve with your business, getting over that amygdala response, I think is going to be, is going to be easier. So those are the things, yeah, those are the things that stand out to me. This has been great, man. This, I guess we started off kind of shaky, but I'm, I'm really happy with where we ended up on this. What are the, what are the key takeaways? You gotta, you gotta ship. Well, you got to ship. Uh, You actually, let me summarize what you said a little bit, because you kind of did just have a takeaway right there. The way to get over it, is to do it in front of other people. There's a line, which I think is the most important line in the article that I wrote, where there's the difference between failure and iteration is that iteration has a feedback response. You know, and it's like, Hmm. you you can, of course, in my head, I was thinking of Muay Thai. Like I can be in a gym by myself and practice and kick the bag completely wrong every single time. And there's no feedback response for it. But iteration is like you're using data to make a change for the next time. But here's the trick. That feedback response can be and like probably will be painful, but it also doesn't have to be, right? Like you can fail in front of people who will make it like a soft landing. You know, I read Mm -hmm. my stuff out loud because reading out loud really helps me editing. To my wife before I publish everything. And like that's the same thing. That's that's an that's the form of iteration. So I really think the most important line, well, the most important line is the one at the end that I highlighted in yellow. But I think one of the most important things to understand about conquering this lizard brain is that the trick is other people. That's that's what it is. Like the feedback, there has to be some kind of feedback or else you're not actually doing anything like you're practicing and you're quote unquote getting better, but there's no feedback response to it. And so like, if we're going to end on something, 
I think it's really, really important that, that we end understanding that because you can dance the dance in your head, you know, like you can practice and like I'm writing every day, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get better. But publishing to one person, publishing one thing to one person once a year is better than publishing every day to nothing. Because like the point is, to get to your point, to find that truth. And without that, without the iteration, like you're never actually going to find the truth that you're trying to say. And, uh, and I think it's important. Like you said, like I really do. We talked about this a few times. Like I just don't think there's anything more important to the human condition than narrative. And that's always going to be the case. So like embrace it and just like dive into it because it'll serve you well. Absolutely. Storytelling. Storytelling yeah. always has, always will run the world. It, it takes different forms. If, if you are kind of, if, if you devote yourself to it, uh, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of power in it. Um, so this was fun, man. Let us know, everybody. What did you think of this? Don't unsubscribe. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is terrible. If this was terrible, give us a week. We're busy. I don't think but, this is terrible. Yeah. I think this is really, really important. Because before so you can too. get good at any of the other stuff, you have to get good at hit and publish. Yeah, that yeah. yeah, it wasn't it was important, and then we could always just play it off. Be like, yeah, that was an example of us just hitting publish. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're totally yeah. right. Yeah, the cameras roll. It's got layers, man. That was that was the that was the ocean to our pond. You know. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. Thanks for coming in. We'll see you next. Thanks so week. much for listening, guys. We'll talk next Later. week. Appreciate you.